As a teenager, I was very, very involved in the Air Cadets. It's an organisation that, um, that I've, I've done a lot, a lot of work with as an adult. And, um, yeah, as a child, I, I loved getting involved in all the activities I used to do, the, the flying, the gliding, the shooting, the expeditions, getting out in, um, in dark, muddy conditions. We had loads of fun. It was brilliant. And uh, when I got to my early 20s, I, I finished university and I, I came back to, to Bitteriki and um, I joined Brentwood Air Cadets as a member of staff. We used to take groups of kids out on weekends or weeks away and encourage them to get involved in various different things. One of the things we used to do was first aid. It's quite an important um, skill to have. And uh, we used to do these, these exercises where we would do a mock scenario. So typically, um, someone there was a, a farm that we used to use and they had a, a battered old um, army surplus jeep. So we'd, we'd drive that into a ditch or something and make it look like it was tilting and doors were open and we'd lift the bonnet. And we'd have people inside with fake blood and bandages and, and people laying um, around the vehicle. And anyway, we'd just get a group of cadets and say, right, you're going to turn up to this scenario and do what you think is right. And I used to love it because my role was always to sit in the passenger seat, slumped over. And what I'd do a couple of minutes before the exercise started would just get a couple of digestive biscuits and a mouthful of milk and just mush it all up. And I'd just hold it. I'd just lay there. And one of them would sort of... <laughs> One of them would sort of open the door gingerly, sir, sir, and he'd just go, Wah! it was brilliant. Every, got him every time. It was great. <coughs> I'm nice like that. But you see, we used to teach them about the A, B, C, D, E of first aid. Airways, breathing, circulation, disability and exposure. The key things that you look at, the list of priorities that you look at when you're first, when you're first um, greeted with a, with, a, with a scenario like that. Because, of course, the temptation when you're faced with a situation like that is to see the person who is screaming the loudest. Maybe they've got a leg at a funny angle, or maybe, um, maybe, maybe there's, there's, there's a lot of blood that you can see. And it's tempting to go to the one who's screaming the loudest, say, what's wrong, and, and try and help them. But actually, it's a person with a blocked airway who is likely to die first. It's the person who potentially is laying there unconscious, bleeding, who will probably go next. The person shouting is still conscious and is still breathing. And therefore, although it's important to get to them as soon as possible, they're not the first concern. What we taught air cadets in that sort of scenario is not to be distracted by the loudest and worst-looking case but instead to focus on a list of priorities to make sure that they don't lose sight of those priorities. As Christians, we live in a world which is, which is also full of, of, of flashing lights and, and loud noises, distractions, things that can draw us away from what sits quietly on the corner of a desk. So this morning... I want to remind us that as Christians, we're called to be that non-anxious presence in the world. A world so full of anxiety and fear. So I thought today, I want to focus, as we start this sermon, on two points. The first one, life is a privilege. Life is a privilege. It may not always feel like it. It might not feel like it right now. 
It might not ever have felt like it, but it is. Second point, we can enjoy this privilege fully because of what Jesus did for us. So what did Jesus do for us? Well, Jesus, Jesus sacrificed himself for us. That's a statement you would have heard many, many times before. When we go back into the Old Testament, there are two words which are used um, to talk about things being done for God, things being given to God. And those two words are sacrifice and offering. Now, sometimes they're interchangeable. Um, A burnt offering is made as a result of a sacrifice. But an offering at other times is something which can be given in praise, in celebration, an offering of thanksgiving, something that we we can offer freely to God. It can be, there can be a grain offering, there can be a wine offering, there can be a flower offering, there can be an offering of praise. But a sacrifice in the Old Testament is a literal killing of a living thing. A life is taken when a sacrifice is made in the Old Testament. We, we tend to use them now, we can talk about sacrificing our time, sacrificing money, sacrificing resources. But in the Old Testament, sacrifice referred to the taking of life. The lamb is the most commonly used animal for sacrifice in the Old Testament. They did also use rams, bulls, goats, um, birds, all sorts of things. But the lamb is the most commonly used symbol. So sacrifice is a sign of sin. Sin has to be atoned. A punishment has to be dished out to make up for a sin. The first reference that we have to a sacrifice in the Bible. Some people say this is open to interpretation, but it's in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they've recognised their own nakedness. They've heard God coming, they've hidden. They've sewn fig leaves together to cover themselves. So they've sewn these clothes, clothes together, these garments out of fig leaves. They are covered. But that's not good enough for God Genesis 3, verse 21, God replaces the fig leaf clothing that Adam and Eve have created for themselves and replaces it with clothing made of skins. Now, of course, you could say that God just created a skin, no life was taken. But most scholars say that that is the first suggestion that a life has been taken. It's not man's decision, it's God's decision. So one school of thought is that God requires a life to be taken in order to pay for a sin. You see, life is a privilege. And as soon as that, as soon as that privilege is abused by sin, then there's a, a penalty that has to be paid. So when God gives this skin, if we accept that it's a sign of, of a life having been taken in order for the skin to be, to be used to make clothes, then he's saying a life has to be taken. There has to be a punishment for this sin. You see, when you pick the the fig leaf off the fig tree, the tree doesn't die. It will just grow another leaf. You take the skin off an animal, it doesn't just grow another skin. Now, of course... Animal sacrifice is mentioned time and time again throughout the Old Testament. There there are some times when... um, 
the, the, the blood flowing from the altar would have been almost knee-deep. Horrific, what we would say is horrific scenes when there are thousands of bulls, rams, goats, lambs being sacrificed. We can't imagine what, what that sort of thing must have looked like. But animals don't sin. Man sins, mankind, humankind. And yet human sacrifice is never once suggested. You could say Abraham and Isaac, and of course, um, Abraham comes to the point where he's prepared to sacrifice his own son. But God stops him. God does not ever allow human sacrifice. Instead, he sends a sacrificial lamb. So why is that? Why is it? Because if, if we're the ones that sin, then surely we should be the ones that pay the price. It should be our lives, our necks on the block. But it's not. In Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3, it says that any animal offered for sacrifice must be without defect. So you couldn't just look at your herd and say, well, all right, I've, I've been a bit naughty. Um, I've got a couple of rams that have got foot and mouth disease, so but they'll be the ones, no loss. Because there should be a loss. Instead, it should be your, your healthiest, your best, your strongest, your most expensive, most valuable livestock that gets sacrificed. And that sacrificial being, it must be without defect. You see, a human cannot be without defect. None of us are without defect. We all have sin inside us. We have all sinned at some point. And so we cannot come before God and say, Lord, take me. Because he wants us to be without defect. But of course, animals aren't really without defect because they didn't eat from the, the tree. They don't have the, the moral conscience. Or do we? That's a, that's a different sermon. We won't go down that route now. But you see, animals don't choose to sin. And so they don't choose not to sin. And so to say they're without defect is missing the point slightly. But all those animals throughout the Old Testament, they paid the price for the sin of humankind. Time and time again we see. It's the, the, the cycle that Israel gets into where they, they sin, they repent, they sacrifice, they receive forgiveness. They sin again, they repent, they sacrifice, they receive forgiveness. This cycle goes on and on throughout the Old Testament. And you see, um, I'm sure many of you would have heard uh, Pavlov's dog, the, the famous experiment where the, the um, scientist rings a bell, feeds a dog, rings a bell, feeds a dog, gets to the point eventually where the dog hears the bell and just begins to salivate because he knows what's coming. It's almost that sort of cycle throughout the Old Testament where, where we see this, um, the Israelites sin and, and then they repent and then they, they, have to, they have to sacrifice and then they receive the forgiveness. And time and time again, they are told, sacrifice a lamb, sacrifice a lamb, sacrifice a lamb, make a sacrifice. And so when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to the banks of the Jordan and says, behold, the Lamb of God. That statement would have got everyone who heard it that day sitting up, thinking, the Lamb of God. It's the first hint we get of Jesus being the the Messiah, the chosen one, the one sent by God. The Lamb of God, one who is without defect. And as we come before the communion table this morning, we remember Jesus' sacrifice. Now, of course, animal sacrifice, going back through the Old Testament, happens time and time and time again. Because animals, they might be brought before God without defect, but 
they're still not good enough. They haven't chosen to live a life without sin. They just do it because they don't have the choice. Jesus had the choice. When Jesus walked on this earth, he was fully God and fully man. He was fully man. We see that time and time again. We see that in the examples. Um, I think my favourite one's probably in Gethsemane, when he prays, Lord, take this cup of suffering from me, but your will be done. We see the fear. We see the human emotion that any of us would have if we were faced with what Jesus was faced with on that day. He was fully man. But he was also fully God. Because as he lived his life, as he was subjected to temptation, the same sort of temptations that, that we, still, we still face today, he chose. He chose to follow the right path. He chose to resist temptation. And he did all that, not so that he could have a comfortable life, be blessed by God and eventually get taken back up with no suffering to sit by the right hand of the Father and judge all of us. No, that's not what it was about. He did that. He chose that perfect life, that pure life, not so that he could judge us, but so that he could save us. That's what we receive when we, when we share communion together. We receive our claim to that life to that sacrifice that was done for us. We don't receive condemnation through the cross. We're not sort of battered with it when Jesus says, I showed you how you should live. This is how you should do it. Why aren't you doing it? No. We receive salvation through the cross. Jesus says, I know what it's like. I know the temptations you face. I know the weaknesses you have. I know the struggles you endure. And I know you need the cross. Paul tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death. So if we sin, a life has to be taken. But the life of the individual sinner is not sufficient. There is nothing that you and I can offer. There is nothing that we can do. We can give our houses, our cars, we can give our wealth, we can give our families, we can give our own lives, we can give everything we have. Even Bill Gates hasn't got enough to give, to make up for sin. So God took on flesh, came down onto this earth for us, for you, for me, for everybody. Jesus resisted temptation. He maintained his inner purity. Even though he had that that potential to sin, he resisted it. So you see, the price that Jesus paid for us to have life is immense. He was a culmination of a tradition of sacrifice throughout the Old Testament. When we see God demanding sacrifice, and we think, well, hang on, it's been done. There was a sacrifice, uh, you know, after the first sacrifice, wasn't that enough? No, it wasn't. It was never, ever enough. The only one who is enough is Jesus. The only one who is perfect is Jesus. John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when he says that, 
He wasn't talking about Jesus as a lamb like we do sometimes, where it's a slightly patronising word. We, we think of him being very meek and very mild and, and willingly taking the sins of the world, which he did. But Jesus wasn't meek and mild. He was a lion of Judah. He was a, he was a strong leader. So when John the Baptist says, the Lamb of God, there is only one thing that he meant. The sacrificial lamb. The perfect one. The Messiah, the Saviour, who God has sent to be the ultimate sacrifice to make good all the wrongs in the world. So life is a privilege. Life is a privilege because of what Jesus has done for us. Well, that's great. That's sort of the the history lesson over. How do we respond to that? How, How can we respond to that? We're not perfect. We all still sin. We all still have plenty of things wrong with us. How do we respond to that? Well, I sort of got a, an insight into perhaps the answer to that question on Monday this week at college. Monday afternoons, we've had a day of lectures, and we have uh, the last hour is a subject called study skills. And um, the first week I went, um, it, was, it was quite basic. They were talking about sentence structure and um, how to write in paragraphs and things. And you think, oh, this is, this is a degree course. Come on, it's, this is quite a primary level. But it soon ramped up, and um, now it's, it gets some really good tips on how to write theological essays. And it's, it's, a, it's a good class. Um, but as you can imagine, at the end of the day on a Monday, when uh, people have had a big lunch, day of lectures, you do sort of find yourself drifting every now and then. Um, Oh, no, this has been recorded, isn't it? Can we just cut that bit out? <laughs> um, but there's a guy called Joshua Searle, who's, who's a, a, a theologian. He's a, a brilliant lecturer and uh, quite a good footballer as well, funnily. Um, and he said to us this week, he said, right, when you're writing an essay, what is the first thing that you do? And there were these various answers. Um, uh, some people sort of said, oh, do your research. Nope. Um, okay, well, you know, just start your, your, your background reading. No, nope. right, um, examine the question, make sure you get the question. No, nope. um, right, okay, uh, well, <laughs> go to lectures. Let's, you know, start right at the start. Yeah, you start off by going to lectures. No, nope, nothing to do with that. The first thing you do when you start an essay is pray, because writing an essay is a form of worship. You think, what? <laughs> writing an essay is a form of, no, it's not, it's a form of torture. Come on. <laughs> But no, he said everything you do in life should be a form of worship. Sitting down and writing an essay should be a form of worship. It should be something we're thankful for, something we enjoy. He said everything you do at college or at church or at home, everything should be done as a form of worship. And of course that's reflected throughout the, throughout the New Testament, isn't it? You know, Paul, Paul says... Um, Ephesians 6 verse 7, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. So if, if we're serving at the hatch and someone's maybe forgets to say thank you, it's one of those things that really winds me up when people don't show gratitude. Um, <laughs> but if they forget to say thank you, okay, I'm not serving that person, I'm serving God. So let it go. It releases you, it helps you in life. 
Um, this morning, about uh, half past one, Timothy woke up crying and screaming and calling for mummy, which is always a good thing, because I, I feel I've got legitimate grounds just to ignore him. Um, and uh, I heard Joe jo went off, and I don't know, I, I nodded off, and when she came back, eventually, I heard the, these terrible words, Timothy, do you want Daddy to sleep on your floor? And you just think, oh, I've got to sleep here, come on! What? Doesn't Daddy have a say in this? I should have been consulted first. Don't go offering that sort of thing. And I must admit, I, oh, I had the hump. I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't particularly gracious at one o'clock this morning. Um, and uh, anyway, so I, I sort of laid, laid, out, laid out my sleeping bag and I, I got in there and I laid down. And um, then Timothy started calling out for mummy. And I said, Tim, I'm here. And he said, no, Daddy, mummy. I was thinking, oh, I can't, I can't please anyone. This is, oh. And I'm, oh, yeah, I, I, I wasn't gracious. Um, I ended up in the spare room and Timothy ended up in, in, on my bed next to mummy. So, um, but you see, my point is that what I needed to do was to think, let it go. I'm serving God. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a head of a family. I should be setting an example. Not, not letting myself down like that. And we all have little examples. That's just, that's just an example that happened less than 12 hours ago. And you will all have examples in less than 12 hours' time of these little things that happen where, in the moment, you don't serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving God. Instead, you serve with a bit of annoyance because all you can focus on is serving man. Let it go. In Colossians 3.17, it says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In the book of James, we're told to to give thanks when, when we have to endure times of suffering. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that through the testing of your faith, it produces perseverance. So you see, we should just let these things go because we should be serving God. We should be remembering the sacrifice that was made. Remember that, that first aid scenario. So often we can be distracted. We can be the ones sitting there screaming and shouting and making a real, making a real uh, fuss. And we can ignore our neighbour, the non-Christian, who's just quietly getting on with life. But you see, spiritually, they're not getting on with life. Spiritually, they're the ones sitting at the side of the road, a little way away from the accident, silently slipping away. For me, says Paul in Philippians, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If we've chosen the cross, to die is gain. To die is to gain our place in heaven. Sitting before the throne of the Father. That there are so many people out there. For them, to live isn't Christ. And maybe this morning we need to just have a little look at that verse and think, well, for me, to live is dot, 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 fill in the blank. What is it? And if the answer isn't Christ then this morning, let's put that right as we come before this communion table. And let's make sure that corporately as a church, we embrace this idea. I know um, Ian's mentioned it a few times recently, but, but um, him and Gary and myself have sat down and worked out there's, there's around 200 people every week that come into this church. 
for different groups, different activities, who don't know Christ. And so it's great that we, we, we do so much, um, uh, support so many different missions across the world and we do, do so much for them. But actually, mission starts here. We have people coming in here. How can we serve them better? How can we introduce them to Jesus? There is a way. There is a way. And over the next, over the next 12 months, we're going to be addressing that as, as leaders and as a church. We're going to be doing all we can to make sure that when people come into this church, they do meet Jesus. They do experience the Holy Spirit. You see, life is a privilege. Life is a massive privilege. There's so many people out there, it's not a privilege because they don't serve God, they serve man. Let's make sure, as Christians, everything we do is an act of service to God, that we celebrate what Jesus did for us on that cross and that we live lives of gratitude and thanks as we recognise that because of that, we have this privilege to live. Just before we come to the communion table, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to reflect on that with Jesus Christ, I think upon your sacrifice, a song that reminds us of what Jesus did for us. And as we sing that, like I say, if for you right here this morning to live is that word isn't Christ, then as we sing, as we pray, let's just bring ourselves before Christ this morning. Silently confess what burdens we have and then share together as a fellowship. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the evidence of the history Thank you that we can look back and that we can see your plan beginning to unravel. Thank you for the sacrifice that you sent. For Jesus, for our saviour. Thank you for the life that he lived, the teachings. But most of all, Lord, thank you for the willingness with which he lived that life. Choosing perfection every time. Resisting temptation always. Maintaining a pure soul. So that ultimately he was the one. Sacrificed for us. Without defect, without any hint of impurity. Perfect. To pay the price for our sin. Lord, thank you that as a result of that, we can have a a full and loving relationship with you, that we can live life which is a privilege, a privilege that you intended it to be. Lord, thank you for the cross and thank you that it's empty. In Jesus' name, amen.